0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com No by law. Eighteen Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Many months ago, I had the bright idea, or so it seemed at the time, to start an A to Z of snooker. And uh, we've finally made it halfway. We got to M in the last edition. We're now down to N. I gathered together recently in Didno some of the finest brains in snooker. Phil Yates, Neil Folds, and Alan McManus. And we make it through a few more letters of the alphabet. I'm hoping that uh, this will be sorted out before Brexit, although who knows. Okay, N is for non-ranking events. Now we talk a lot about ranking tournaments and we rank players by the amount of ranking tournaments they've won but there have been a hell of a lot of invitation events that are very prestigious. The Masters, obviously, which which Allen has won, is is the leading one. The Irish Masters uh, was a huge event um, and it's worth sort of recognising, Phil, a lot of these tournaments have come and gone but, you know, they all count, you won a trophy. They were great tournaments
2: and let's not forget Neil who won uh, the the first (laughs) Dubai Duty Free uh, Masters and also the Regal Scottish Masters Mm -hmm. which was the traditional sort of season opener for a while and that was a, a superb event as well. I think any time you get the elite together, whether it's for ranking points or for big money or whatever, it's going to be a good tournament. And they were, but they don't really exist that often now, do they? No. It's just the Masters and basically that's it. Was there sort of As a player, was the focus any
1: different? Were you not playing for your ranking? Uh,
3: yeah, I was pleased to win those two actually. Uh, my main memory of, of that, it was the first ever tournament in Dubai um, and then the next year we, we weren't allowed to play in it. Barry boycotted it, interestingly, which is funny now thinking about the way that things have changed in the game. He said that none of uh, the matchroom players could play in it because I think um, he felt that the tournament had been taken off him by the, by the WSA who he now works with. Anyway, that was what happened there and the, winning them uh, the, the other event, uh, next year trying to defend it, I come against Angles, which is not the draw. In No, in the, um, in the Scottish. Uh, oh, so yeah, said, yeah. Yeah, but no, they're good events. The other one I remember, which which fell oh, by the way, so we talk about snooker in Belgium. The Humo Masters was quite a big event for a while, you know, that was, that was a good tournament. Um, I lost in the final to Mike Hallett in that one, but um, you know it was, a, it was a very nice event. And people think that maybe you know snooker in Belgium was a new thing. Actually, that was in the well about 1990, and uh, there was a lot of people interested in the game in that part of the world then. Interesting, actually,
4: they mentioned uh, that part of the world. Um, in Germany, uh, I played the, the European League back then. It was kind of invite top eight or ten or whatever it was, but they also invited a few European amateurs, which was good but I remember playing in Hamburg we were talking about it last night Actually, they were hanging from the rafters actually watching it I've always thought let's have a tournament in Hamburg mm. you know because it was amazing the, the crowds I couldn't believe it It was actually the famous night when Jimmy played the Massey shot I think it's on YouTube that was mm. that was actually I think it was
2: in Hamburg and you can sort of hear the crowd it was it was awesome over there I did the World Mixed Doubles Championship in Hamburg at Green Snooker Club and again it was absolutely packed, and they've got a tradition out there. They rather than clap to show their appreciation, they stamp their feet. And we got the locked-off camera on the trophy at the end of the match, and they were all stamping their feet. and the The, the, the camera was going all over the place because you know, obviously, the the the, the, the stuff it was mounted on was getting moving as well. It was a great atmosphere, really good, and I, I agree with Alan. I think it would be a, a tremendous place to go to. Actually, a quick story about the Regal Masters that you're talking about. I've got a
4: funny memory from it. Actually, I, th- I lost in the final twice. I lost to Ken. And I lost to Bondi, and um, Nigel beat. I think it was nine, eight, or ten, nine. He beat me the uh, decider, and I got drug tested as is normally, you know, both finals, uh, both finalists, And uh, a couple of my mates came along, so it was about fifteen miles from where I lived. So I got a drug test, had a couple of beers because I'd lost, and um, you're, you're supposed to remain on site to do the drug test. Actually, a couple of my mates, I couldn't go to the loo, so, you know, it was like I had to just wait around, waiting, having a couple of beers, and they said, and I lost my kind of thought, probably through the beer, and they said, come on, we'll just go back home, so I went home and I got a phone call about two in the morning, said, listen, you've got a drug test to do, you can't leave the premises, otherwise you might be in trouble the guy actually drove out to my house but back then there was no like Google Earth or what you know, there was no (laughs) so he took about an hour and a half to find my house it was about four o'clock in the morning and we were still having a few beers, me and my mates so I did the drug test in my own house it was, like, it was wow. weird, you know, yeah. about four, four o'clock in the morning, but they were they were good tournaments, so
1: well, yeah. would just finally on this Goffs, we have to mention. <coughs> yeah, I was uh, going to the, the Irish Masters, I mean, that was an incredible uh, venue for snook, wasn't
3: it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I played Ken there, which was he got a huge reception. I played Alex Higgins there, the, the time when he had the bad leg, and, <clears> and I lost to him, and I thought, this is no good, I've got beat by a fellow on one leg here. <laughs> I know he had everyone on his side, but then he went on and won it, so I didn't feel quite as bad about that. That was a great event. I lost in the final of that mm-hmm. to Davis once. Davis won it, I think, a lot, didn't he,
4: Times or something. Yeah. He beat me twice in the final. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, that was a that was a terrific tournament mm. actually, and you know, I think that was. Quite a special invitation event, you know, as was as is the Masters still is, because you felt like you were going over there to something that was quite important. I think the final point I would say on that, it didn't seem to matter that it wasn't a ranking event, you know, it didn't seem to matter. It meant a lot to be involved
1: in it. Well, I'm going to throw you Phil a hot potato, okay? Um, because we're at the Tour Championship, this is a ra- eight man event, ranking event, you know, Players Championship, sixteen man ranked event. Should the Masters now be a
2: ranking event? I don't think so, Can and I'll, I'll tell you why, because it's. ...based on two-year rankings. So in that two-year rankings, there's the World Championship... ...where 16 players are seeded into the last 32. So everybody doesn't start on a level playing field. Whereas for this one, all of the tournaments that count for this... ...for the World Grand Prix and indeed for the Players' Championship... ...start in the 1-2-8. So everybody's on a level playing field. So you could actually say that the the Masters is slightly different... ...because it's a two-year list... I mean, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to make it a world ranking event. And certainly, if they did, you wouldn't hear any great protests from me. But I think that's one of the reasons why it isn't. But yeah, but that doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because if, they, if you said it was going to be a
3: ranking event the year after next, then everyone's got the same chance of being in the, the 16 for the year before, haven't they?
4: Strictly speaking, they actually don't because a first-year pro has got, what, six or seven months to get in it? Yeah,
2: good yes. point, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so. We're oh. saying
4: no, then, are we? <laughs> I did say it was a hot potato. <laughs> yeah, not yeah.
1: yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, right. I, I think the mystique of the event would be a little tarnished as well. I mean, let's face it. It doesn't need to be a recent event. To, no, no, it doesn't it need, need to, to, be to be a racing event. Yeah,
1: yeah that, that's, that's the final word. OK, we move on to O, which is for 147. Uh, this season we had the 147th 147, Dave Gilbert. Rather prosaic surroundings of... Um, the Rico in Coventry, no audience or any, any, any of that, but he made it, he's on the list again. Um, it's still a special break, I mean we do have a lot of them, but we have a lot of snooker and we also have a lot of players down the list
2: who are now capable of making these big breaks. Well two things come to mind about 147s which are sort of an original thought really. One is that increasingly we're seeing players make a 147 and lose the match in question. It's remarkable how often that happens. The other one I will say is, people always ask me, what's your favourite 147? And it used to be the obvious ones, but now I would plump for one that is very left field. But I'm doing this because it gave the person who made it immense pleasure, more than any other 147 I've ever seen, and he won very little for it Fergal O'Brien in the Championship League when he made that one four seven, he was absolutely over the moon there was no one there watching it didn't mean <laughs> hardly anything to anyone apart yeah, from Fergal and he football, was yeah, yeah. absolutely delighted and I was really pleased for
1: him you, you did say left field um, we go back to John Spencer of course he made one and there was this thing about it what well, the pockets were templated, templated right. but also the cameraman member at McDonald's that was in um, Slough I think wasn't yeah. it yeah and Joe Johnson was there he told me he was watching he said that after This was a different time Clearly Because he said After Spencer potted The last pink He did a sort of Mock feint He lay on the floor and <laughs> Got up and potted the black um, But then of course Davis It would have to be Steve Wouldn't it To make the first mm. one At the, the Larder Classic
3: I have to say I actually went to that event This Slough mm. With my dad um, I don't think that day We were there One of the days and I think the pockets were bigger. I could even you could, you could even tell that from watching it, you know, just on the sidelines. I was only a kid, but you could see the pocket. They were going in off the jaw. People were saying it. Now, there's nothing to take away from John Spencer, who was, th- you know, three times champion, of the World Great Player. But, so I think that's fair enough. There might have been buckets, actually, for that one. Um, uh, yeah. You now, it's not a surprise that Davies made the first one, is it? Really, uh, you know, he, he, he sort of changed so much <coughs> in the game. But I think it's—I I never made one. I don't, did you? Have
4: you made one? No, I never made one. I've never had one against me either. I nearly had oh, one yeah? at the Masters one year, mm. when the prize was um, a big. It was like an XJS or something. And it was a big green thing with like cream leather interior, and it was—it looked like massive because it was in the foyer of the conference center. And I was playing David Rowe. I remember. And I should have got one, I think I screwed the 14th black in uh, on and off Cush for the red. And if I go past the red or hit the red um, full ball, I'm perfect it. And I hit a half ball and left it horrible. But I, and it would have been nice to make one at the Masters, but so that would have been, uh, you know. To nice.
3: be honest, I don't. I mean, as much as Fergal O'Brien's is, was a great break, I'm sure I can't see how that's the best one. I think just feels <laughs> just gone a bit. Uh, you no, know, no, no, gone rogue. No, no, gone no, rogue. No, <laughs> no, no not rogue.
2: not the best one, but the one that gave me the warmest feeling, certainly. And I know it did for Fergal as well. It was... There's never been a bad one,
3: no, that's no, for sure. No, one thing no. I can say about that: there's never been a bad break. I mean, right, look, I'm going to keep it simple and say that Ronnie's 147 uh, won in five minutes twenty. I can't. Every time I watch it, I still can't believe how quick it was because
4: he didn't seem to be rushing. That's the strangest part about it. I think the best black that's ever been potted was maybe Selby. He potted mm. in left middle, didn't he? For the 100th. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. So I, mean, change, I mean that, that was an awesome shot to... Mm. You know, usually it's like high black and you but that—that was how did he land low? I don't remember. But
3: I... the last part about it, would say, is that, that exclusive club of players that have got to the the black and missed, isn't there as well? Which is yeah. quite, uh, I think. Mm. You know, obviously Ken is on there. He's probably the, the highest profile one. Mm. Chai has done it a couple of times.
1: Selby as well did it in Selby China. It. He, no one ever sort of mentions that, but that was on telly. He, he missed yeah. the last black. Um, but he sort of redeemed himself. Obviously, what, what's happened is they've become more regular, so you don't get now the big money prizes. I know they have the rolling
2: prize but it's very rare now that that rolls over to a really massive price I think people don't understand how it all worked in the in the old days 147s (coughs) were very very rare so a sponsor say embassy or whoever could have a a bet with a bookmaker that a 147 would be made at very very large odds so if you're offering say I don't know £147,000 for a a 147 you're actually only putting up I don't know 20,000 because you get 7, 8 to 1 before that it was even bigger odds now you go to a tournament and maybe it's six to four, even money, depending on the, the scale of the event. So they can't really afford to put those big prizes up now. It's not a matter of them being stingy or miserly or anything like that. It's just the way of the world.
4: I actually still say the biggest one single frame achievement in the history of the game is Jamie Burnett's one four eight, mm. because i Because in practice, matches, all time, I have, I've had a free ball, I think, once, <clears throat> maybe twice, ever. And that t- to do, <laughs> it's just mind blowing. I think you know. Mm. And that was terrible the
2: way he was treated because yes. they wanted to. gave him a nothing. There the, was no high. Was UK it was
4: pre-TV. It? No high break
1: prize in that <coughs> in that stage. But but they so everyone thought well there should be a special prize, um, and I think in the end, he didn't qualify for York. But they they, <coughs> they invited him down. Standard fare uh, return, but and basically it was worked out he would have to be there about 10 minutes. We would have to go back again. But
4: (laughs) one part part of the prize he got, which was, well, judge yourself, this is ridiculous. He was given two tickets to a match of his choice. Yeah, (laughs) he's never watched a match in his life, you know. No, it's a shame, but anyway,
1: he's there, and and it'd be interesting. I mean, that's I suppose that's the next milestone if someone can make a break above 147 on TV that would be that would be a moment wouldn't it but, uh, well we yeah, had a 16 red clearance at the Crucible yeah. obviously
3: Steve James but re- literally I see two or three instances a season where players got a mm. chance of that mm. because obviously without telling people what they probably already know you've got to make a foul uh, at the start of a frame and all 15 reds can't be hit well that's quite unusual in itself isn't it mm. you know, there'd have to be an unusual set of circumstances but yeah I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean I think I had one or two opportunities in my career just, just on the practice table like you say it's very rare mm.
4: yeah
2: you went for a one four seven against uh, Willie Thorne in the English Professional Championship at yeah. an eighty,
3: and took a liberty and went to try to swerve a, to, um, a red or, to get to get on the black for the eleventh. And you, I thought I'd won the frame, and he ended up winning the frame. Got a free ball, won the frame. But needless to say, I got the last laugh, won the match. <laughs> <laughs> no one asked that question. But no, I'm still saying it, it. it's
1: always brought up that though, isn't it? When anyone yeah. gets to eighty, well, there was a one instance. Yeah, with, no, uh, there was, yeah, anyway. eighty. I was a bit sick. Anyway, let's move on to P, which is for pot black. Um, BBC television programme 50 years old this year, 1969 it started uh, BBC Two had come in and it was the first colour TV service, the controller of BBC Two was David Attenborough um, who went on to become quite famous for other things and he commissioned this programme to showcase the colour service and obviously snooker with its colours was perfect and the rest literally is history isn't it because that was the first exposure most people had to, to snooker, certainly in colour and from there we, you know, we've moved on to this multi-million pound circuit
3: yeah, it was, I mean, the thing about it was, it, it was all recorded over the couple of days, and it was meant to be a secret, wasn't it, who won it, but it was brilliant, I mean, that, you, I think, would it be a Thursday evening, it was on something like that, around about nine o'clock, and it was the only snooker on, and you, you would always watch that, just one frame of snooker, and, and um, you know, I mean, the, the frame I remember was when Eddie Charlton made the break of 110, um, a couple of series in, I think, I don't know exactly the year, but, yeah, you know, and word had got around that it happened, and you know, wasn't no one was going to miss that episode. You know, tremendous.
4: I strangely remember watching it, but I, I don't think I'd ever played in a full size table. I'm guessing it <coughs> would have been around 79, 80, 78, 79. I, I can't remember who was playing. What I do remember about it was Alan Weeks was the presenter, was mm-hmm. that right, Alan? Weeks yeah. And the little trophy, and it's obviously I was only a kid at the time, and you think how. How does every frame last only 25 minutes or whatever, <laughs> obviously they edit it down, but it, right. I watched
2: it and I wasn't really into snooker, I was too young, but it sort of got, got me hooked, yeah. It so, shows actually how the game has changed and evolved, because nowadays if you had a one-frame programme lasting a half an hour, you'd have a big fill, wouldn't you really? More is, that than you? Like, is that you? had yeah, more <laughs> than likely. <yeah. laughs> but back then, quite a lot of the frames had to be edited down yeah. to fill, because you know, if there was a lengthy safety exchange, and who could blame these guys because that was the best exposure they were going to get all year, and that was going to give them exhibition work because if people saw them on the telly playing well, oh, we'll, we'll book that guy. And one player, it made his career, was Graham Miles. Yeah who won it not once but twice and obviously got to the final of the 74 World Championship as well.
1: Well, that's, in, it was, that's the thing. It was important for, for the game but also for the players because, like you say, it was, a, it was a chance for them to sort of showcase themselves. Oh, I've been on the BBC, so now all of a sudden they are booked for more exhibitions, You know, as seen on TV, and in those days there was the World Championship and, and basically that was it. So you couldn't make a living from tournament play. You had to make it through the
2: holiday camps and, and the exhibition circuit. The other thing is how the world has changed. Alex Higgins was blackballed. For a few series, he wasn't allowed to play in it. Now, can you imagine the TV companies now saying, "Oh, yeah, that's no problem. If you don't want to have Alex in, you know, don't don't worry, we'll go ahead anyway." They would insist on him being in because he was the, he was the rater, he was yeah. the big rater, and of course, it was Sidney
3: Lee in the early days was the referee, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, which, you know, that's that tells you how far it all goes back, really. And,
1: uh, but also it established the etiquette, didn't it? You know, the players in the waistcoats, the whole sort of feel of snook, tournament snooker, which we sit, still see today, was established then.
3: Yeah, terrific. I, I liked it. And, uh, you know, obviously they had junior pop black after that for a while, but I think the we original. You played in that, didn't you? Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, the first year it ever took place, I was in that. Didn't win it. Uh, John Parrott, um, Lost in the final to Dean Reynolds. That was the very first year of it. Yeah, that, that, was, that was very nerve wracking. You know, I think we were sixteen year olds and hadn't played on the TV. Just in, just terrified really, just to be there. But it, was, it was quite very exciting.
4: <laughs> I remember they had Port Black. Uh, they reintroduced it. Mm. it. Must have been around ninety two, and it was a Blackpool. Anyway, cut long story. Um, it was. I think it was scheduled for June, m- mid June, and we had a long break in the season. That we didn't play until about August September. So I was not playing, I was supposed to play in Pot Black in Blackpool, completely forgot about it. The guy who looked after me at the time, I went in the club this day and he said, do you know where we're supposed to be right now? I said, no. He said, Blackpool, Pot Black's on. I'm like, oh no. So I get a disciplinary letter in from the governing body, goes down to Bristol for the disciplinary hearing. And Barry Hearn was on the board, he wasn't chairman at the time, I can't remember who, I think John Spencer was chairman. And so I thought it was all that official thing and I sat down I was only about 21 at the time they said right Alan what's your explanation for not be-? and I said well the car broke down and mm. we had a blowout in the motor and Barry Hern just piped and the first he said oh come on now, you've got to come up with better than that son and that you know that's Barry it? I yeah.
3: never realised Alan was such a rebel you've no, like, not rebel. done a drug yeah. test oh, not yeah. turning up for <laughs> tournaments I don't remember
1: any yeah, of this <laughs> he's,
2: <out> the window. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's a rebel With a pause, not without one. Uh, A a niche joke. Um,
1: They also they had some uh, towards the end, like you say, it got revived, and then they had some. It was like time frame they called it. It was like against the clock, which no one really understood how it worked. Mainly the players. They didn't have it. I won it, but they (laughs) they never had it
3: again. Yeah, they they said no more of this nonsense. Yeah, yeah, I won that, but. it, it didn't seem to catch on. They had an idea. It was a bit like chess, where they yeah. would. It was, it was not like the shootout. Now, what it was is you would play your shot and you would stop the <laughs> clock. So, but I mean, I suppose there it, it, it is possible you could do something with that now with the slow players because um, someone that took too long on the shot ran out of time. Basically, and it was it didn't work out. And but I still, I still, um, I've got my name down as a winner, pot black, and I didn't oh, receive okay. the trophy. Albeit
2: it said time frame next to it. I forgot about that. They also had a one-frame shootout in Stoke, which was rather ridiculous because in the final, Darren Morgan beat Mike Halley 2-1. Yeah. Now, work that one out. Yeah. I actually, yeah. that, that I remember that. I was at Trenton Gardens. I, I drew Stephen Henry in the first
4: round and, and somehow managed to beat him, but uh, I, that's what I remember about that. I, I th- yeah, I remember the fact, I, I think I got to the semis or quarters or something, but yeah. But this is why,
1: in the end, Pop Black got stopped because obviously the game had moved on, and people would rather, in the end, not watch half an hour. They want to watch the World Championship over 17 days and all, the, and all the other tournaments. But it played a very, very important part in the game's development. Let's move on to Q, which, and this is a bit of a cheat, but bear with me. Q is for Q, as in Snooker Q. Um, Obviously, you know, the most important part of a player's armoury, and, and we've seen a lot of players over the years stick with their one trusty queue. A lot of players on the other hand changing their queue, messing around with the queue, getting a new queue, breaking a Um We sort of take it for granted, don't we? We see them
2: walking in with it, but it's a very important bit of kit. Well, we're doing this podcast here in didno, and of course, this was the hometown of Fred Davis for many years. And Fred was the archetypal example of someone who kept the same queue throughout his career. He turned professional at the age of 16, he stopped playing in his very late 70s and the cue he started with was the cue he finished with, which was remarkable really by modern standards. We've had a few instances over the years where people have forgotten their cues. Cliff Thorburn, do you remember that time at the Grand Prix? And I think he used um, John Spencer's cue at the time Cliff was a top player and he lost 5-0 to Steve Newbury, he couldn't knock a ball in. so. Back then it was thought If you lost your cue Or it was damaged That was you Finished Well
3: when Stephen had his cue stolen It was at Hexagon wasn't it um, at, For uh, Right in, at the point Where he was the best player in the world uh, His cue went missing um, I think he left the <coughs> practice room Which was in the hotel and Went to get a drink Come back It had gone I mean he reckons That he would have lost 5-0 Because the, the cue they brought down Was meant to be a replica But Stephen was very sort of particular He only used That he had that same cue For many many years Didn't he And um it turned up just in time, and but he reckons that he was doing the line-up with this other queue. He couldn't make 16 with it, so it's a massive thing.
4: I remember that day, actually. I went in the hotel. It was called the Renaissance, so upstairs from the Hexagon at the time, and there was security guys. I'd maybe done practice or something, and they stopped me on the way in, like not searched me, but like, who are you, why are you here? All the, It was a big... Uh, I'm not surprised like after all the I other know. things. <laughs> <I've> you <played>. stole <laughs> it? I know, I've still got it in my mind. Mean, uh, <laughs> <clears> um, but yeah, queues um, are... <clears> um, Massively impu- There was one. I had one funny uh, thing that I. Um, this is another rogue one for me. I'm, you know, <laughs> a, a, a rebel. Um, I, I lost in Preston one night in the the car park outside the hotel through the bus station. It was dark. It was like ten o'clock at night. Packing up the car, put my stuff in the car, my case or whatever, and you go to put your snooker cue in the, you know, through the back of the, you know, the the boot of the car. And I just lost my mind, and I obviously didn't put it in. So I'm driving home. I'm got I've got to about Carlisle, which is about eighty miles north of Preston. And you look in the mirror to see the top of your queue in the back of the queue. And I've gone, oh oh, no queue. I'm like, oh no 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 no, panicked. I've had to drive back, and it was lucky it wasn't raining because if it's raining, the, the you know the, your tip's going to be damaged. The queue's going to be probably damaged. So it drives back to the car park, it's pitch black, and my cue's still lying on the floor of the car park. Uh, that old cue you used to use, <coughs> you used to beat me with every time, you should have just left it there. Because uh, uh, it was uh, all well, taped up I, at the I end. I found it in someone's garden, they were growing pea pods. So <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but
1: they also said about Henry's cue that it was basically no good. But obviously, yeah. for him, it, it was a cue. No. People always said you would never pick it out of the rack if you well, wanted to pick one.
3: I don't think it was an expensive cue, but no. sometimes you can pick up a. Nice bit of wood, you know, as a queue. I, mean, I I used the same queue for years as well. Um, and my queue wasn't all that, but um, I, you know, now it seems that um, you know, the, the way that they're made such high quality, you know, you can probably get used to a new one relatively quickly.
4: I actually think now with queues, I've had the my, the queue that I use now for just over three years, I think, um, a a queue from Thailand. I actually think now the, with a modern player, a good thing is to change your queue, maybe every Four or five years, right. because players now the modern guy hits the ball that firm. It actually does sort of not deteriorate, but it changes. You know, when you pick up a brand new queue these days, it's like an iron bar. You you know going through, you go through the white light. It's unbelievable. Mm. As time goes past, and I'm now what three four years now with my own queue you sometimes feel this isn't hitting it as solid as, as it did when I first got it. So I think, and players can adapt now because cues are all mm. very uniform,
2: but. You know, p- players do generally like what they've got but... From a journalistic perspective I think the best Q story was the one in early 2006 when Graham Dott had been beaten in the Welsh Oton <laughs> and he was driving home and just on the spur of the moment on a service station Decided to break his queue So he's there trying to break the queue And he just can't do it, the bloody thing won't break No, what? he actually hurt his leg He put it, <laughs> he put it diagonally against the wall and, th- and he couldn't break it and he hurt his leg He said there was a lorry driver looking at him From the cab of his lorry looking at him said, what are you trying to do here? There he is, he's getting more and more mad trying to break the queue And he wouldn't
1: But we should, On the sort of, sort of less funny side of that uh, Alain Robertu, of course um, His cue got broken, not by him um, and that complete, well, it destroyed his career basically.
2: Well, he turned up at the World Championship the year after the queue was broken. I think it's the world number seven because, of course, then your ranking only changed once a year. Had he been under this system now, he would have been so far down the rankings he would have had to qualify. You're right, David, it absolutely decimated his career. The thing as
4: well with with Elaine's queue, as most of the Canadians used, they were cues called Dufferin, that was the name of it, the, and they had these fibre ferrules, the dark ferrules that Cliff used, and I think Bill and whoever else, uh, the Canadian lads, so it was really, he, like for Elaine to go to maybe a one-piece ash or a two-piece maple, whatever, I think would have been really difficult with the brass ferrule and all of that, and they had that joint in the middle, the Dufferin cues. So I, that uh, was apparently the guy just like he, he had a logo on it or something. Yeah, he'd,
1: Alain had put a logo on because mm-hmm. he was being sponsored, and the, the the person who made the queue, he was quite elderly, I think, and a bit a bit of a traditionalist. Took exception to this sort of sponsorship and just smashed it up, which was you know, just mm. awful, really. Mm.
3: Yeah, that's right. And he, he wasn't the same player for mm. probably ever again, but he did eventually get used to a different queue, but uh, it, it affected him um, worse for the reasons Alex explained, than I think, would anyone else in the game. Mm.
1: I heard one top player say, I won't say who it was, but he said that um, there's a, there a case for players taking more than one queue into the arena. Um, now, of course, Luca Broussel did that at the Masters, it didn't work for
4: him last year. Is there anything in that? I, I don't think so. Yes. No, I mean, I, I remember one guy, Robbie Grace, who, who <laughs> when I first turned pro, he had two ash two one two two one piece ash queues, and he used to stand just before going out and with one in each hand and think that one, that one, that nah, I'll go with that one, and he would, you know, but that's that that would just wouldn't happen nowadays. I think, no matter how uniform a cue maker gets, that you know, a piece of wood I see as a you know snooker geek. As, as a kind of living, breathing thing, so you don't get to the same. So I, okay, I'm trying to think, you're not going to say who it was,
3: but whoever it is, he's, he's clearly a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right not to name him.
1: That's not the right thing to do. No, I, I'm, okay. not, I'm, not, I'm not going to well, say Best not. Well, not after you call him a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, we talked about Hendry. I mean, he was never really the same after his queue got broke. He got broke by baggage handlers at Heathrow, sort of ignominious end.
2: Yeah, he won tournaments with the new queue, uh, but the old one was... Part of the, the armory wasn't. It, it was mm. part of the arm, yeah. part of his body. It felt like you know symbiosis, whatever they call it. But yeah, he wasn't the same player. Although he he did win events. But yeah, I mean back then, the the, the thought process was if your cue was damaged, it could basically be terminal for your career. That was what the general assumption was. There mm, was sort of one last thing on that I was going
3: to say is that when I was sort of doing okay at the game, that they, they came to, to one of the queue manufacturers said we're going to try and pioneer a graphite cue and if you can put your name to it I thought this is, could be good couldn't it so they, they gave me the prototype and honestly it was unusable you couldn't break off with it and you'd break off you'd hit the pink full ball or you'd go the other way and you'd miss the red it was just impossible to use a graphite cue in any way it just did not play anything like um you know an Ashawn
1: maple cue so that quickly disappeared just just one final point. Um, Alan obviously you're very much still playing and you, you'll be aware of this traveling abroad now you can't take your cue on with you, you can't carry the cue no. onto the plane. So there's that anxiety when you get to the other end, particularly in China, and maybe you've had an internal flight. Is it going to
4: turn up? Well, th- that fortunately touched wood. I've not had my a, cue a, a not turn up so far. But um, my last time I was out in China, just uh, before Christmas, I uh, got out there, went on the practice table, and my ferrule started pinging when I was hitting the ball. The reason I think is when it's in the hold for ten hours, it's minus whatever under there. It's really cold. Obviously, wood shrinks over that period of time. So the the ferrule now is actually loose, and that so it's not a not a good thing. But that maybe in the snooker geek, I actually have made a a kind of fibre cover for my cue to right. put in my yeah. case. It's like an ins. It's like insulation. Mm. To put your cue in your cue case and then in your uh, sport tube, that hopefully will stop the you know the, the wood from shrinking and, and causing a problem. But what if, if your cue ends up
3: getting you lost it in the baggage? That doesn't matter, does it really? All that you know, that does no help to you.
4: No, but if it does turn up, <laughs> <laughs> it might not. It might not pick. But um, I was one other quick thing on mm. that. Um, the cues, sorry, <clears throat> uh, a player who I won't mention, he left his cue overnight uh, back home on the table, on the bed of his table, and the heaters were on overnight. And he, he came in the next day and his queue was like a boomerang. <laughs> he spent two days you know, bending it back into shape and he got it, thankfully, back into shape. So you've got to be careful. And me, again, being the geek, um, I actually, when I put my cue in my cue case, I turn it 90 degrees every day. I mean, that'll sound really like wow. far out... But <laughs> and <laughs> <coughs> folds so he's just his head in the his scene. hands. <laughs> the reason is so that I I'm, I just think if you turn it ninety degrees every day, then it will stay straight over time. Does okay. that all make sense? That lad knew it was a boomerang <coughs> because he threw it away and he came back to him. <laughs> yeah. And on that joke, <laughs> we're going to end. Thank you very
1: much. We're making progress. By about twenty twenty three, we should have this alphabet finished. Thank you.
0: Sports social podcast network.